Good morning, church. Go ahead and have a seat. So this morning, uh, we are going to continue in our series called His Heart. And this is drawing from the thoughts out of this book titled Gentle and Lowly. And the, the premise of this book is the one place in Scripture where Jesus describes his own heart. So we read in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus, gentle and humble, or gentle and lowly in heart. And today I want to try to tackle this aspect of Jesus that I don't think we often comprehend or we often think about. Jesus as a tender friend. So chapter 12 in this book, if you're reading through it, chapter 12 is titled, A Tender Friend. And I want to take a look at what that might mean. So in Matthew 11, we see John the Baptist, who was the one that pointed the way for Jesus. And we see John the Baptist is then imprisoned. And he sends his disciples, and he says, Jesus, are you really the one that we're waiting for? Are we the one we're looking for? And Jesus responds by explaining all these things he's done that has fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. And then he gives this long answer, and it ends in chapter 11, verses 18 and 19. It says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And I want to take a look at what that means. So if we back up a little bit, we first find that phrase in Matthew 9, verses 9 through 11. And it reads like this. As Jesus went on from there, and so where he was at prior to this, there was a paralyzed man, and Jesus forgave his sins, and then he healed the man, and he got up and walked. And then we read this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Or if we were to read the NLT version of this, why does your teacher eat with such scum? And I love how this book, Gentle and Lowly, speaks into this. It says, though the crowds called him the friend of sinners as an indictment, the label is one of unspeakable comfort for those who find themselves to be sinners. That Jesus is friend to sinners is only contemptible to those who feel themselves not to be in that category. And if you feel like you are not in that category, we will have prayer ministers down front following the service. I would encourage you to see them. But the reality is we can take comfort in that, knowing that the fact is we all sin. We can all relate to that. But I want to take a look at Matthew, the tax collector, this morning and the significance of what Jesus is doing here. 
So we see Jesus call Matthew the tax collector to follow him. And now if you were to look in the book of Mark or in the Gospel of Luke, you would see the same story, but you would see Jesus calling a man Levi. Now this is not an heir, this is the same person. Levi would have been this man's Hebrew name, would have been his original name. And Matthew was his Greek name. And I'll explain more of that here in a minute. But tax collectors in this culture were hated. They were despised. They were loathed. They were sent out by Rome, who was the world-dominating power at the time. And they were given permission to do by whatever means necessary, whatever they had to do to get the taxes that Rome felt they were due. But they were also given a freedom that whatever they wanted to do above and beyond what Rome was due, they could pad their own pockets with that. They had the ability to extort people, and the people, there was nothing they could do about it. Because at the time, Rome ruled with fear, with intimidation. So, for example, when Rome would overtake a city, they would sometimes crucify people and they would stand them up at the gates of the city. That whoever to enter that city would see those people and they would know that Rome is in charge not to mess with them. And so you see these tax collectors just saying, okay, we have Rome's backing. Whatever we want to do is free game. So imagine for a moment you have this friend named Levi growing up. Maybe he lived down the street next door. You played with him, right? Your buddies. And then along comes Rome and overtakes your city. And now all of a sudden you and your family are getting taxed to the point you can barely make ends meet. You can barely put food on the table. And then all of a sudden you hear about your buddy Levi taking on the name Matthew and going to work for Rome. Your friend, or what was your friend, is now benefiting from your suffering. There's a good chance he wouldn't be your friend very long. He probably didn't have many friends whatsoever. And there's one other thing about this Levi that I want to touch on. As I said, it's his Hebrew name. And so as a Hebrew boy, one of the most imp utmost important things in his life would have been his education. They would have studied the Torah, the laws of Moses. They would have memorized the first five books of the Bible, line by line by line by line. I mean, that's an that's a education that I can't even begin to comprehend. And if you were good enough, you would get called to higher education. And if maybe you were lucky enough to be one of the best of the best, a rabbi would invite you to follow him or to apprentice him. So Levi, as a young Hebrew boy, that would have been one of his greatest goals, his greatest achievements, would be called to follow someone. And so where we see Matthew, where we find him in this story, he's sitting at a tax collector booth. And knowing that history, we can probably imagine he's sitting there feeling alone, empty. And then along comes Jesus, 
And Jesus simply says, follow me. That's all that's recorded. Follow me. Now, if you have friends like mine and they walk up and say, hey, follow me, you're going to ask some questions. (laughs) But there's none of that here. At the end of verse 9, it simply says, Matthew got up and followed him. No questions, no hesitations, at least none that are recorded. And he gives up his life to follow Jesus. Now, when we read this, we can think, well, you know, Matthew's no different than the other disciples when he gets called, right? So we can find Jesus walking along the seashore, and he looks at Peter and Andrew and James and John, and he says, put down your nets and follow me. And we read they drop their nets and they follow him. But the difference, I think, in this is those four, and I don't want to question their faith, but those four always had fishing as a backup plan. Fishing wasn't going anywhere. If this Jesus thing didn't work out, they'd go back to fishing. But we find Levi, then Matthew, has given up his Hebrew heritage. He'd given up all those hopes and dreams. And now we find him as a tax collector working from Rome for Rome. And when Jesus comes along, he turns his back on Rome. And there is no going back from that. He is all in on Jesus. And what I love about that is he's also not shy about it. Because we see in the next, in the next uh, story that they're at his house eating, right? There's other tax collectors and other sinners there. Now, we don't know if these other tax collectors or these sinners or scum, as they're referred to in Scripture, we don't know if they knew what Matthew did. We don't know if they did the same thing. They might have just been there for a free meal. But as they all gather, and then Jesus and his disciples are also there. And this is a point in history where there is a growing animosity towards Jesus. So this house is full of people that society hates. And they say Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus even agrees with it. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. So how did, how did we get to that? Jesus, who was gentle and humble in heart, spoke to Matthew as a friend. Only in saying two words, follow me. But those two words spoke so much into who Matthew was. It's all Matthew needed. Jesus spoke as a friend, but he saw Matthew as a man that was probably alone, probably feeling dejected and rejected by society. He, had known, he knew what Matthew's dreams had been. He knew that as a child, his greatest ambition would be to follow a rabbi and worked hard for it. Yet all of those dreams had been thrown away. Jesus knew what he had been through. He knew the desires of his heart. He saw his pot- potential. Jesus saw Matthew in a way the rest of the world did not. 
And in saying, follow me, Jesus spoke to him and said, I want to spend time with you. I value you. I respect you. I want to be your friend. And at this point, we have no record of knowing what Matthew knows of Jesus. Right? This, this might have been a complete stranger for all we know. But when Jesus speaks to him, there is something that when he says, follow me, there is something inside of Matthew that trusts him. Something that allows him to feel seen and recognized. Someone wanted to be his friend. And as I sat with that this week, I began to realize that most of us, if not all of us, we live our lives like Jesus did ministry. And here's what I mean by that. So when you read scripture, Jesus hung out with the masses, right? But then inside of that, there were disciples. And even within that group of disciples, there was the 12. But he didn't always do everything with the 12, right? If you look at the Mount of Transfiguration, he only took three people, Peter, John, and James. Peter is the only one he said, you are my rock on which I will build my church. So we see these layers of friendships. And I think that's true for most of our lives. We have lots of friends. Maybe you even call them acquaintances. You know, people you see around town, co-workers. Maybe you only get to see them a couple times a year. You know, I have friends from all over the country, or maybe around the world, that I only get to see during nationals. But then we have friends that are closer. Friends that we talk about life with. Friends that we like to hang out with do things with, people we trust, we enjoy being in the presence of, people we love. But then we have those one or two, maybe three, that create our inner circle. People you really share life with, you share your hopes and your dreams with. People you know you can truly count on. You probably refer to them as your best friends. So when I look around this room this morning, I see a room that is full of people that I call friends. Some of you I will call future friends because I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. But, and I've always explained to my girls as they grow up, you can never have too many friends. Some of you are newer friends. Some of you I've known for a very long time. You know, as I look around the room, I can pick on some people, but, you know, I see Tracy Douglas. I've been friends with her brother since I moved to Knoxville. We had a bottle rocket and Roman candle fight in her dad's hayloft. <laughs> Only by the grace of God did that not burn down. I was going to pick on Tony, but I don't think he's here today. But, you know, Tony Rosenboom and I have been friends for decades. We got kicked out of the same high school baseball game together. So there's, there's a history. But then there's also people in this room that I hang out with on a regular basis. We discuss all kinds of topics. We share interests. We support one another. We pray for one another. Our kids are friends. We've went on vacations together. 
we do life together. And if I know that if I ever needed anything, I could call and they would do all they could to help me. And I know they know that of me. I have really good friends that live in other towns that I don't get to see or talk to as much as I'd like. One of my dearest friends lives three states away, but I always know that if there's ever anything, I can call and he'll be there. And then we have those who are closest to us. And if any of you are like me, you have the blessing of having your spouse be your best friend. So, Ange and I have been together for 27 years, and on Tuesday we get to celebrate our 19th wedding anniversary. Don't do the math. Unfortunately, I was going to celebrate her this morning, but unfortunately she received my uh, early anniversary gift and is home with the cold that I've been fighting off for two weeks. So. But I won't pick on her today. But I do want to talk about the other person that I call my best friend. Now, when I use my best friend to explain Jesus, when I say the name Steve Bellin, many of you will giggle. If you know Steve Bellin, and I'm going to use him to explain Jesus, that might be a stretch for some of you. But for me, it works. And here's what I mean by that. So Steve and I have known each other our entire lives. We both grew up in Melcher together. If you didn't have the privilege of growing up in Melcher, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I remember as kids, we would go to the same birthday parties together. I can remember we would ride our bicycles to the Melcher Square on a Saturday morning before cartoons came on to get a donut from the Bailey's Donut Truck. He would ride his blue bicycle with the yellow mag wheels. I would ride my bike with the banana seat and the Space Invaders chain guard. When you can ride a wheelie on a Space Invaders bike with a Bailey's Donut in your mouth, that's when you know you've arrived. <laughs> I may have peaked too early in life. But I can also remember, just as clear as it was yesterday, seeing his mom walk in through the back door with a pizza in one hand, carrying the blue VCR bag in the other hand. And if you're under 40, you, your parents will explain what a blue VCR bag means. But that's how you knew it was going to be a good night. And I can remember sitting on his living room floor, eating that pizza and watching the making of Michael Jackson's Thriller video on VCR. Epic. But then as life happened, we both ended up moving to Knoxville a few years apart. We've always remained friends. There was a time where we weren't as close. He was a wrestler. I was a basketball player or a pumpkin pusher, as they refer to us. Pretty sure it was a term of endearment. We would still get to occasionally do things together. But then as we got to college, we became very close again. And there are so many stories that I could tell you. Most of them you would not believe. Some of them I don't believe, and I was there. We started families close to the same time. Steve and I have been neighbors. I have taken his kids to the hospital. He's taken my kids to the hospital. I've taken Steve to the hospital. He has tried to send me to the hospital. 
One story, I think he tried to send me to the morgue. We've worked together. I've worked with his wife at two different places. We share the same taste in music and in books and in documentaries. And we've had this plan for a long time that someday when we get to retire, we're going to buy rocking chairs and we're going to find an old coon dog to sit in between us and we're going to yell at kids as they drive by. It's going to be beautiful. We had plans that I was going to learn how to play guitar and he was going to play the harmonica so we could sing the blues. Problem is, neither one of us have a lick of musical talent. But because we have been through so much together, some of it really good, some of it terribly, terribly painful, we have a deep relationship. We have a deep friendship. We talk about our fears. We talk about our dreams. And I know I can trust him with my deepest secrets. And I know that if I ever need anything, day or night, all I have to do is call. And one of the reasons I know that is because he's proven it time and time again. For example, my wife and family, we were driving back from my sister-in-law's, and we were by a tumwell one night. It was like 11, 11.30 at night, and we hit a deer. And the deer shoved the grill into the radiator, the steam flying everywhere, quickly figure out we can't drive it home. So we pull off to the side of the road, and I reach for my phone, and Ann says, who are you calling? I'm calling Steve. And so as he answers the phone, clearly woke him up, and I said, hey, buddy, we're, we're clear down by Atumwa. We just hit a deer. Is there any chance you could come get us? He said, tell you what, I'm going to run out to my dad's and get the car trailer. I'll be there as fast as I can to pick up you, your family, and the car. And that's exactly what he did. Things like that have proven to me time and time again that he always has my back. And I have tried to be that same friend to him. So what does all that have to do with Jesus? Because I believe that is the same kind of relationship that Jesus wants with all of us. He is gentle and humble in heart. He wants to spend time with us. He wants to hear our hopes. He wants to hear our dreams and our fears. He wants our trust in him to grow deeper with time, with experience. Whether that experience is happiness or in grief, he wants to share that with us. And as we grow in that relationship, we can give him more praise. We can cry out to him when we need him the most. And he's always there. And he even started the relationship. In John 15, verse 15, it says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know his master's, what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. He's taken the lead by sharing everything with us. Will we trust him? Will we follow him? And when we talk about Jesus as a friend, we don't get to cheapen him to just a buddy. 
right? We don't get to wear the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. Because at the end of the day, he is still the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is still the one that left his righteous place on the throne to take on flesh. He is still the one that lived the sinless life. He is still the one that went to the cross to die for our sins, to take what we deserve so we can receive what he deserves. Jesus is still the one that conquered death once and for all, was resurrected. He's still the one that ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf today and for eternity. That's who he is. He is huge. He is above all things. But he is gentle and humble in heart and wants to be our friend. And as Andrew mentioned a couple weeks ago, whenever we come to him, whenever we come to him, he will never turn us away. I want to close by sharing two stories of how all this I've talked about this morning has played out in my life. The first story is some of you have probably heard this before. The second story, um, the only person I have ever shared it with is my daughter Faith. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, So the first story Reminds me of this story with Matthew, where Jesus said, follow me. When I was first invited to church, I was invited by a friend. And if I'm being completely honest with all of you, I did not want to be there. I was there for my friend. I certainly was not there for Jesus. But on that morning, I have no idea what the message was. I know there was a baptism that morning. I have no idea what the message was. But on that morning, I felt that knocking at the door, the knocking at the door of my heart. And I felt Jesus say, follow me. And that morning, I realized Jesus is what I had been missing my whole life. With Jesus saying, follow me, like Matthew, I didn't, I didn't even know what questions to ask. I just knew I had to. And my life changed that day. It changed drastically that day. To the point where my family and friends were freaked out, quite honestly. And where I was sitting in the old Pizza Ranch Church, as it was called then, where I was sitting on that day, when Jesus knocked at my heart and said, follow me, is now where my desk sits every day. Now, I'm not smart enough to come up with a story like that. And I also don't want to stand up here and pretend that since saying yes to Jesus, that my life has been all rainbows and butterflies. It has not. I have had to work at my relationship with Jesus. I've had to spend time with him. I've had to learn how to trust him. I've had to learn how to surrender myself to him, to be available to him. And I haven't always done it well. 
But just like with my friend Steve, I have learned over time that I can always trust him. He is always there when I need him most. And that brings me to my second story. Like I said, I've, my daughter is the only person I've ever shared this with. And I feel extremely vulnerable sharing it with you today. So I'll try to get through it without crying. So I had been in ministry for just a few years. I was still trying to figure out, well, I'm still trying to figure out how to do it, but even more so back then. And then one day I had a friend that died. 1,493 days ago today, I received a call that I had a friend that died. And now I don't want to stand up here and say that this man that was quite a bit younger than me was my best friend. He wasn't. And I wasn't his best friend. And I know his death was even harder for many people. But I'm just going to share from my point of view. So I received the phone call that he had passed away. And I was, I was devastated. Because we had had an intentional friendship. We had, maybe a mentorship might be a, a better way that some of you would look at it. But we had made intentional meetings to talk about hard things of life. You know, like girls and things like that. But I found myself knowing that this death was going to be tragic for so many people in the community. And I found myself in this space that I didn't, I'd never been in before. I didn't know what to do. And so I poured myself into everybody else. I tried to care for his family and his friends and the community and my family as we tried to make sense of it. And it was a couple days later that I realized, like, oh, man, I've got to figure out the logistics of this service. This is going to be huge. And then I had to figure out what I was going to say at this service to honor my friend. And for a week, I barely slept. Because I found myself, every time I would begin to slow down, the emotion would catch up. And then when the day of the, the visitation got here, it was unbelievable. The emotion, the logistics. And then we found ourselves having to switch the building over from a visitation for the funeral the next day. All the setup, the, the preparation. And on the day of the funeral, you know, trying to make sure everybody's needs are met, trying to get through my speaking part without losing my mind. And then following the service, we went to a burial service, and then I found myself having to hurry back to make sure the luncheon was set up so everybody could have what they needed. And then as the luncheon ended, I wanted to make sure everybody knew the church loves you, we're here for you, you don't have to go through this alone. 
And then as more people left, we had to make sure the, the plants and the flowers and the pictures and all those things got in the right people's hands. But there was, at one point that evening, I found myself alone in the building. And I was still putting things away, trying to clean up, trying to organize, trying to get the building Sunday ready, as we call it. And as I got through all of that, I was getting ready to leave, and I remembered I'd left my keys up here on the stage. And so I walked in, and the only lights on in the building were those can lights back above the camera in the sound booth. So it's dimly lit in here. It's quiet and it's still for the first time in days. And so I walked up, grabbed my keys, was headed out the door, and somewhere down this aisle, everything that I had tried to outrun for the last week caught me. And I remember sitting in the first chair of the last row, right beside where Henry Benzik is sitting, and just lost it. Crying doesn't even begin to touch what was happening. It was an uncontrollable sob. So I'm sitting in this dimly lit, quiet, still room, just sobbing, screaming, why? Why? And at some point, I remember yelling at the top of my lungs, Jesus, I need you. And it was in that moment when I screamed, Jesus, I need you. I felt the presence and the touch of something on my back. And I heard the audible voice say, I am here. And my heart stopped. It took my breath away. And I jumped up and turned around to figure out who was in the building. I thought I was here alone only to turn around and see no one standing there. No one that I could see. And as I processed what just happened, it was in that moment that I realized, you know, it's going to be okay. The pain still hurts. The loss is still very real. But in my deepest, darkest hour, when I said, Jesus, I need you. As a gentle and humble-hearted friend, he responded that I am here. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those, re- those words had never been more real to me than they were. 
in this room all by myself. I don't want to say that you have to get to that place of broken desperation. I pray you never get there. Because there has been countless joy-filled experiences that the Lord has revealed himself to me. But it was in that moment it became real. Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but also my gentle and humble-hearted friend. And he wants that relationship. He wants, he desires that relationship with each and every one of us. So like with Matthew, Jesus says, follow me. How do we respond? Let's pray. Jesus, we, we do need you. We need you as our Lord and Savior, and we, we long for you to be that gentle, humble, lowly-hearted friend that will never turn us away, will never leave us, never forsake us. And we can read that in Scripture. We can read that in a book. We can have people tell us that. But I pray for more than that today. I pray that that truth would take deep roots in each and every heart here. That it's not a head knowledge, but it is a God-given truth. That Jesus, we can come to you with our fears, with our hopes, with our dreams, with our desires, and you always say yes. And like with any good friendship, I pray that we, we as a church would become more available to you. That we too would be able to receive what you have for us. So we thank you and we praise you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that you are above all things, that you are huge, but you are right here with us, that you are our best friend. And so we praise you, we thank you, and we do it all in the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen.